Hi everyone. Thank you for joining us today for the today's webinar. I'm Beth Allenson, accredited sports dietitian and in-house sports dietitian for SDA. I'll be facilitating this webinar and I'd like to introduce you to Amy Lee Bowler, who's our presenter today. Amy is an accredited sports dietitian and a PhD candidate at Bond University. Her PhD is entitled Tools for the Assessment of Energy Availability. Is day-to-day -day assessment of energy availability possible? She's recently published the first paper from her PhD, and I'd encourage you to go and read that. It's a great read. And the next component of her research is to pilot the use of CGMs with elite athletes. So today, Amy will be discussing uh, CGM technology, its applications, and sharing her experiences using these devices in high-performance settings. I'd invite you to post any questions that you've got as you think of them during the presentation today, and I'll facilitate those questions uh, at the end of today's webinar. If we do run out of time, as sometimes we do, um, Amy's really, Amy is really happy to answer those questions later on. So I'd encourage you to post them and we will definitely get back to you. This webinar will be recorded and loaded onto Moodle uh, at the end, so you can watch this again. Uh, and I'd now like to hand you over to Amy Lee, who's about to give us a great presentation. Thanks for that, Beth. Um, it's a pleasure to be here hosting my first SDA webinar, as you know. Um, and I think right here on this picture is a site we'll be seeing a lot more in the near future. Athletes wearing these continuous glucose monitors, as you can see on this um, athlete here, he's wearing that CGM on the back of his upper arm. And athletes are starting to wear these devices in, a, in an attempt to get that desired edge over their fellow competitors. So in order to ensure that we are all up to speed um, and prepared for if and when these devices do take over in sport, today I'm going to discuss with you the use of continuous glucose monitors or CGMs as we commonly refer to them and how we might apply these in sporting context as part of our typical athlete servicing model. Now, before I continue, I'd just like to acknowledge a few people who have been with me along my PhD journey and have helped me with this presentation. So that would be Greg Cox, um, Vernon Coffey and Louise Burke. So let's talk about how CGMs work. So there's two types of glucose monitors that are currently in circulation. And usually for simplicity, we refer to both of these as continuous. But if we're gonna be technical about it, um, con the continuous monitor is like the Medtronic iPro2. So the iPro2 is commonly used in research settings because we can hide the readings from the participants. It's stored on a transmitter, which is then removed from the sensor. And then at the end of the testing period, the data is downloaded to a computer. These devices typically don't require syncing throughout the testing period, but we do need to do our finger prick calibrations four times per day with a glucometer. Now Medtronic has a significant focus on diabetes management and these devices typically provide readings every five minutes. Now the second type of monitor, which I'm going to focus on today is the flash monitor, which is like the Freestyle Libre 2. And the reason why they're called flash monitors is because you must flash your mobile device over the sensor every eight hours to get a reading. 
Now this shows us readings in real time. So athletes can see them on their mobile phone. But again, you must uh, flash your phone over it every eight hours to prevent loss of data. You don't need to do fingerprint calibrations with these monitors because they're calibrated in the lab. And these typically provide us with readings every 15 minutes. Now, most applications we can record carbohydrate intake and exercise as well, but we can't really analyze this any further. Now using CGMs, we insert them into the subcutaneous tissue, either in the abs, the butt or the back of the upper arm. And these um, provide an indirect measure of blood glucose levels via the interstitial fluid. These uh, then sync with your mobile phone and deliver the data to your mobile phone, which we can then download and view 24 hour periods of continuous minute by minute glucose data, either in real time or retrospectively once you finish monitoring. Now, most commercial, commercially available CGMs will provide glucose readings every one to five minutes, but this does depend on the type of CGM. So as I mentioned, the Medtronics typically provide us with uh, readings every five minutes, whereas the Abbott Freestyle Libre, we're looking at every 15 minutes, so not as frequent. Now, uh, this table here tells us about the currently available CGMs that dominate the Australian market. So um, at the top there, we've got the Abbott um, CGMs, and then we've got the Dexcoms and the Medtronics. So these are the monitors that typically dominate our market here in Australia. Um, now, and there's some pictures along the side there as well, just for reference. Now, this column here talks about the MARD, which describes the accuracy of these devices when we compare them to a reference value. So we can see that as these sensors have become newer, so such as the Libre 2, that's newer than the Libre, the G6 is a newer device than the G5, um, we can see there that the Libre has become much more accurate as they have developed, which, as, which we would expect with a newer device. Um, but it's important to note here that these values are from diabetic individuals. So we haven't, uh, there's one study that's been done on athletes, which I'll touch on in a minute, but this is specific to, to diabetics. So we know that they're relatively accurate when we're looking at the readings that we get from CGMs compared to what we see from blood glucose. Now, um, most of these devices have been developed for use with diabetics, so either insulin or non-insulin dependent diabetes. Um, although there is one device, as you can see there, that's been developed specifically for athletes, which I'm going to talk about more um, in a minute. Now, some of the devices, as I mentioned earlier, will take reference uh, readings more frequently than others. So the Freestyle Libre will take samples every 15 minutes. The Dexcom will be every five minutes. And then um, that athlete specific sensor is much more frequent. So that's actually every minute, um, which is a really good um, positive about those sensors. Now, um, some sensors also last longer than others. So the Abbott Freestyle uh, sensors, they last about two weeks, whereas the Dexcoms and the Medtronics only last about a week. Um, I mentioned previously um, about the calibration, just before I talk about the price, that some are factory calibrated and some are lab calibrated. So um, the Abbott Freestyles, like I said before, they don't require um, finger prick testing, but the Medtronics, they do. 
Now, as you can see by the price there, these devices aren't that cheap. So we're looking at spending upwards of around $100 for every sensor. So that's $100 every two weeks, for example, with, with the Abbott Freestyle Libre. Um, more expensive if you're looking at the athlete-specific monitor or the Dexcons, which don't last as long. So given that they're not cheap, I think it's really important that we consider that the data that we're collecting is really meaningful and that we're targeted with our use of CGMs. So we might consider using the CGM around like an intensified training block where it might be more difficult for athletes to match their energy intake with their exercise energy expenditure. So just trying to be really targeted with that data that we are collecting given that they aren't particularly cheap. So this device here has recently been developed in the last year or so, and it's been developed specifically for athletes. However, we can't access it yet here in Australia. It's only available in European countries. Now, interestingly enough, this device is almost identical to the Abbott Freestyle Libre 2. So it collects the same amount of data, um, last 14 days, you still need to sync every eight hours, but it does give us more frequent readings. So we get those readings every minute because it connects via Bluetooth. So you just look at your phone, you open the app and it's right there. And I'm gonna show you that in a minute. Now, the other thing with this uh, sensor, which is different to those that look at diabetes is that the blood glucose range that it looks at is much tighter. So this will only detect um, glucose readings from three to 11 millimoles, where we would typically see diabetic monitors looking at two to about 14 millimoles. So the, the range is much tighter. You must also have an app um, called Super Sapiens to use this device. And I'm about to show you um, what that Super Sapiens company is all about. So here's a quick video. Enter Super Sapiens, powered by Abbott LibreSense Glucose Sport Biosensor. Super Sapiens is an energy management system that is commercially available for the first time for sports performance that empowers athletes with real-time glucose visibility, actionable insights, personalized event analytics, and real-time data, the crucial energy metrics you need to know, all in one streamlined app. So for anyone who hasn't seen, that's sort of a little bit of a snapshot into Super Sapiens. Um, and I'll show you a little bit more about the app in a second. Um, there are a number of athletes around the world that are using Super Sapiens. And believe me, it's all over their website. So they're definitely making use of, of that. Um, so we've seen Kipchoge. We've also seen Blumenfeld from Triathlon um, using the CGMs both at, in training and I think they've used it in races as well. Um, and I'm sure this is only the beginning. So I think we're going to expect to see a lot more athletes wearing these devices as they become more available across the world. Now, this is what the Super Sapiens app looks like. So it typically displays blood glucose values um, graphically like it is here. Um, the blood glucose values are downloaded to your mobile phone via Bluetooth. Um, and so we can see them minute by minute. There's also the ability to add in events. So you can see that flashing blue button at the top there that says event. So we can add in a number of events such as food um, and you can put in your macros, so your carbs, protein, fat. You can add some notes in there if you want to. You can pop in uh, stress, you can put sleep in. 
um, and you can also add exercise and it'll appear over the graph like it like shown in this um, little video here so um, the logo with the glass and the fork that's obviously where we've eaten something and then there'll be a sign for when you've slept um, and so you can add that and it'll go over the graph um, Unfortunately, there's no real further analysis of this information. That's kind of where it stops. So we can sort of see the graphs, we can see the blood glucose information, but I guess we need to know, okay, well, what do we do with this information? And that's kind of where there's a gap at the moment. Um, as I mentioned, there's no access to this, um, to the general public in Australia. So we, we managed to get access to this because we trialed a few of the CGMs. I wore a few of them all over my body um, and got some blood glucose readings. So did Greg. I think he was a bit alarmed because it tended to look like he might have had prediabetes. But, you know, um, so we've had a bit of a play around with that. Um, a few athletes in Australia have also been sponsored by Super Sapiens. So there's one triathlete um, that I've got in mind that that has worn this device. But again, there's no real in-depth understanding about what this might be able to tell us as yet. Um, just quickly, this is the Super Sapiens dashboard. So it gives us some information on glucose averages, glucose variability. Um, there's also a heat map, which um, this video will show you in a second. And that shows us different glucose values. So um, as we can see there, as the glucose readings increase, they sort of go more orange and then lower glucose values are in blue. So we can see what someone's glucose values are doing across the day. Unfortunately, though, Super Sapiens doesn't really provide us as practitioners with a whole lot at the moment. So they give us an excellent representation of what blood glucose looks like and gives us lots of fancy graphs. But we, need, we really need to contextualize this information to understand exactly what's going on with an athlete's blood glucose. So taking into account training load and looking at their dietary intake, well, what is blood glucose telling us about that? What is it telling us about their fueling adequacy and or possibly their energy availability? And that's sort of where um, it's lacking at the moment. Now, to go on to some familiar terms, which I guess is a bit of the boring part, but I just wanted to make sure that um, you guys had an understanding of the terms that are typically used around blood glucose and with CGMs, because a lot of the research will talk um, in these terms. And so I think if we understand these, we can better understand the research that's currently out there. So we know that, as I mentioned, CGMs do produce a large amount of volume of data. And so it's really challenging for us as practitioners to review and interpret these glucose readings. So I guess another uh, reason for using these terms is to help us better understand um, what's going on with blood glucose, what's happening, how variable is the blood glucose over the day and how accurate are the devices that we're using. So as you might've recalled, I talked about MARD in that table before where I had all the different blood uh, glucose monitors. And so the MARD is the mean absolute relative difference. So it's a more technical assessment of the actual device itself. Doesn't really tell us a lot as practitioners about the athlete, but it does tell us about how accurately the values that the CGM is collecting, how accurately do they actually reflect someone's blood glucose values? So this is a good indication of the accuracy of the device itself. Now, there has been one study that has been completed in athletic populations that have looked at the accuracy of CGMs. This is the only study that's been conducted to date, and it was conducted on um, a few sub-elite endurance athletes. 
So this paper found that CGMs were actually more accurate among athletic populations. So that MARD value was slightly lower than 10% in the athletes and is slightly higher than 10% in diabetic populations. So I guess this gives us confidence moving forward because it tells us that CGMs are accurate when used in athletes to provide us with data that is reflective of blood glucose concentration. And in fact, it's more reflective than in diabetic populations. So we can have confidence moving forward that these devices are giving us accurate data. Now, a second term that we use um, and that is probably quite useful to us as practitioners is the MAGE. So the MAGE is the mean amplitude of glucose excursion. And so this tells us about the fluctuations in blood glucose that occur uh, across one 24 hour period in so across one day. So it tells us about glucose variability. So how does an individual's blood glucose change over the course of the day? So we're looking at those fluctuations in blood glucose across that 24 hour period. Now, another measure um, that's really important for us as practitioners as well is the MOD. So that looks at the mean of daily differences. And this uh, measure kind of complements the MAGE because it tells us about the differences between glucose values at the same time on consecutive days. So if we look at an individual, we might look at their blood glucose at 9am on a Monday, and we might go, well, how does that differ to their blood glucose at 9am on a Tuesday? And so the mod tells us about what is the difference between those values at, on different days at the same time. Um, and again, that's a measure of glucose variability. And so um, in diabetic populations, large fluctuations in glucose variability have been associated with complications. So I guess it's important for us to have a look at this and see, well, what is an athlete's glucose doing over the course of a day or between two time points? And how does this differ? Now, finally, uh, another measure that's typically reported um, in the research is the area under the curve. And so this tells us about the variation in glucose concentration over time. So it's another useful measure of interstitial um, glucose concentration over a 24-hour period. And for those math heads that have tuned in, here are the very straightforward calculations as shown on those um, in those boxes, but I'm not even going to attempt to explain those. But if you're really into math, you can have a look at those. Now, um, leading on from talking about the MAGE and the MOD, um, I have recently, with the help of Louise, Greg, and Amy Morabito, another fellow PhD student, I conducted um, this study which looked at um, the, what the real change in blood glucose might look like when we control an athlete's dietary and exercise conditions. So what is their natural variability in glucose day to day and from one time point to another? So we were looking at comparing this to, or having a look at previous studies that have been done in healthy populations and going, well, what, what are athletes look like? Because no one has yet looked at the variability in athletes themselves. And so I guess the point of this study was to provide us with a bit of a a baseline so that we knew what we were looking for when it came to intervention studies. So what, what do they look like normally? So for this study, I um, consulted a number of race walkers down at the AIS um, and 
Some preliminary data does suggest that the natural glucose variability, so both that MAGE and that MOD value, are quite similar to what we've seen in healthy um, non-athletic populations. So as you can see at the top there, we had a MAGE of about 2 millimole, a MOD of about 0.7. And in healthy individuals who aren't athletes, we saw 1.7 and 0.7. So, so quite similar to what we saw in healthy populations. So we can um, rest assured knowing that those research nerds out there will be happy when we conduct our intervention study because we know what a significant change in glucose concentration will look like when we put an athlete into LEA or if an athlete's in LEA, what are we looking for outside of these measures that's going to tell us that blood glucose has uh, blood glucose control has been disturbed. So I guess this leads me to the question of how can how can CGMs provide us with the inf with some information on daily fueling needs of the athlete? So there's been a very small amount of research, as you can see, only four studies here. Uh, that have explored the ability of CGMs to potentially provide us with information on the apparent fuel availability of athletes during exercise. Now, to date, the most popular use of CGMs in research has been um, observing, just, just looking at blood glucose responses of athletes. So we're not doing any interventions, we're just having a look at their blood glucose over both single day endurance and multiple day ultra endurance events. Now, just to talk about this paper here and a few of the papers in a little bit more detail so we can get a bit of an idea of where the research is at at the moment. This paper here um, used CGM technology to provide some information on the adequacy of uh, some endurance athletes' carbohydrate intake during an ultramarathon race. So not surprisingly, the results of this study showed that those who had lower carbohydrate intakes they also had lower blood glucose levels and therefore they ran slower, which is, I guess, what we would expect. Now, um, we also saw in this paper here by Francois and colleagues that um, looked at blood glucose responses to another endurance event, mind you, much longer, an adventure race over five days. We did see that there was a difference in glucose variability during the race. So there wasn't any differences found in glucose concentration, but we did see that variability change across the race. Now, increases in glucose variability, we know are markers of disruptions to glucose control, as I spoke about earlier. So perhaps this might indicate to us that these athletes who competed in this race may not have been fueling appropriately to match the demands of their exercise because they had more variable blood glucose across that race. Now, finally, this last study here, this explored the blood glucose profiles um, of athletes during a 100 kilometer ultramarathon race. And so what this study found is that the runner who consumed a higher carbohydrate intake, interestingly, experienced greater glucose variability and also experienced hypoglycemia at the end of the race. Now, this might be explained by the fact that this athlete was recreational, so they may not have been um, particularly strategic with their carbohydrate intake and their adequacy of carbohydrate pre-race may have may not have been there or may not have been sufficient. So um, it's telling us about their carbohydrate intake and their distribution of carbohydrate throughout that race, potentially. Now, 
Um, the use of CGM technology to provide us with this information, both within and post exercise, it enables us to identify some strategies that might assist with post exercise glycogen restoration and, and also strategies to um, better distribute the carbohydrate throughout the race and even your pre-race carbohydrate as well. So another paper that I'm going to talk about in further detail, which is really important to talk about, is one that was authored by Tom Doring and some colleagues at Bond University. So uh, essentially what happened in this study is that the athletes were fed a high carbohydrate diet, which was 10 grams per kilogram per day. They did this for a total of nine days, and this was in an attempt to supercompensate their muscle glycogen stores. Um, and this occurred after a glycogen depleting exercise, which was a cycling trial. So if we're looking at the figure here, just to explain what happened, they started off at day one and they did a glycogen depleting cycling trial. Then the athletes carbohydrate loaded with 10 grams per kilo. They completed another glycogen depleting exercise session at day five. They then loaded again for another period of time. And then they finished with another glycogen depleting trial. Now, the uniqueness around this project and why it's important to talk about was that not only did the researchers take muscle biopsies to determine muscle glycogen content, but the athletes also wore CGM devices. So they wore that Medtronic iPro2, the typical continuous glucose monitor, to collect some information on glucose concentration alongside glycogen concentration. So typically studies of this nature have only looked at muscle glycogen on its own. So the inclusion of continuous glucose monitoring technology is quite novel here. So what did this study tell us? Well, before I get into the results, it's important to mention here that the CGMs were placed on the athletes approximately 24 hours before the trial began. Now, the reason why we need to place CGMs 24 hours before um, the study begins is that they need 24 hours to calibrate or start, or start up, I guess. So it's something that we need to be mindful of when we're using these devices with athletes, because if we were to place the CGMs on these athletes the day we started the trial, the data that we're seeing here wouldn't be reflective of what's actually happening because we haven't given the CGMs that 24 hours to calibrate and then be aligned with the study that we're undertaking. So that's a really important point to note. Now, getting onto these figures here, we can see that interestingly in that figure two there, athletes were able to supercompensate their muscle glycogen stores equally. So they supercompensated on trial two and trial three. And so they did that equally. But when we look at the area under the curve, which is that figure three, we can see that the um, interstitial glucose area under the curve was actually lower during the second um, carbohydrate supercompensation than it was during the first, which might seem a bit odd, right? Like, I mean, they've supercompensated with the same amount of carbohydrate, their muscle glycogen stores are the same. So then why might their area under the curve be different? Or why might their interstitial glucose be lower? Well, there's some possible explanations for this. And the first is that these athletes may have in fact experienced a reduction in carbohydrate absorption at the GI tract during that second supercompensatory period. Also, potentially they may have had an adaptive response to the high carbohydrate intake, which is uh, whereby their enhanced um, 
glycogen storage would have reduced the circulating glucose in the blood or interstitial fluid, which means that we'd see a, a decrease in the glucose values recorded by the CGM. Now, another possible explanation for this result is that um, the athletes may have had increased carbohydrate oxidation during the second carbohydrate load. And I'm about to discuss that a little bit further in a minute, because I think that's really important to understand. But before I talk about that, I guess the main takeaway from this paper is that these are additional factors that we really need to be aware of when we're using CGMs or observing glucose levels, because we're not always going to see what we expect to see. And so I guess, you know, we need to be mindful of these other aspects that are, that are taking place or these other factors that might be contributing to blood glucose levels in the body. Now, this study also shows us that CGM does have the ability to show us the interstitial glucose values and it, and it may provide us with some information about fueling adequacy or, or substrate use. Now, just to briefly extend on that comment about carbohydrate oxidation, um, this is an older paper here, which I'm sure some of you have already seen, but for those who haven't, I'm just going to touch on it briefly. So this paper here looks at the determinants of respiratory exchange ratio. Um, and for those who aren't familiar with RER or respiratory exchange ratio, that tells us about the proportion of fat versus carbohydrate that's being used both aerobically, um, that's, sorry, that's being used aerobically both at rest and during exercise. So it tells us about the proportion of either fat or carbohydrate, which one are we using um, predominantly um, aerobically when we're at rest and during exercise. So this study employed some endurance trained uh, cyclists. They completed a weighed food diary um, prior to the test and then completed a test to determine their RER. Now, the, um, when they completed the weighed food diary, it was found that their carbohydrate intake ranged from about 30 to 70% of their energy intake and their fat intake ranged from about 9% to 45% of energy intake. And so interestingly, um, we determined that muscle glycogen content was positively correlated with respiratory exchange ratios. So higher RERs were associated with higher muscle glycogen content, which indicates that when you eat more carbohydrate, your RER also increases. So we see here at higher RERs, your um, carbohydrate is contributing more predominantly to your respiratory exchange ratio. And we would be using carbohydrate preferentially um, over fat here. When you're consuming more fat though, or more dietary, um, you've got a higher dietary fat intake, your respiratory exchange ratio is lower. So down around those lower values, that's where we're seeing a predominance of fat being used um, or, or, or burnt. And so I guess that's what this study essentially showed us was that you burn what you eat. So if you eat more carbohydrate, you're going to burn more carbohydrate. If you eat more fat, you're going to burn more fat. And so that's what that told us. And so in the case of that Doring paper, the athletes were burning what they ate. So they were oxidizing carbohydrate in response to that high carbohydrate intake. So what, what might this tell us about energy availability status? I mean, does, do CGMs even have the ability to tell us about that? So I'm going to talk about that a bit now. So recently, and as Beth spoke about um, when we started, um, we recently surveyed a number of Sports Dietitian Australia members, which some of you guys might have completed that survey. Um, but for those who haven't, I'll quickly run through what we did. So 
we would we ran this study in an attempt to find out what assessment and management practices sports dietitians were typically using currently when they were assessing um, and managing athletes at risk of low energy availability. So this study found that Sports Dietitian Australia members would typically use menstrual function, dietary intake and training load assessment as primary methods to, methods to detect LEA. Now, we know that while menstrual function is com very commonly used to assess an athlete's LEA status, the research has shown that it does have poor temporal resolution because it does manifest over a very extended period of time typically. Um, and so thus there's substantial delays in identifying an athlete's inability to meet their dietary, um, their daily energy expenditure, sorry. And so that takes quite a, quite a lengthy amount of time for us to see the manifestation of that typically. Now, we also know that there's been some field-based studies that have been done. Um, I can think of one in particular by Ida Hakura um, that looked at the issues that might exist with self-reporting of dietary intake. And so this study specifically told us that there is poor reliability, as, as I'm sure we all know, um, in quantifying typical food and fluid intake. And, and a lot of athletes um, and, and the general public, in fact, um, how, do struggle with recording their dietary intake accurately. And we often see a lot of under or over reporting. So it's difficult for us to make an accurate assessment of low energy availability when we don't really have an accurate measure of dietary intake um, and menstrual function might take a long time. And that's the same with all of these other measures here, like resting metabolic, metabolic rate. We don't all have access to that. Um, the leaf Q, yes, that, that is validated, but how much does that, does that actually tell us? And can we use that by itself? Well, not really. We need to use it with a, a number of other tools. Um, and then you've got your other hormone, um, other hormones there and your sex hormones. But again, it's, sometimes it's difficult for us to access that and we need to wait a significant amount of time before we actually see the results of LEA showing up on these, on these um, results. So I guess this paper and this information that came out of this paper, it really sparked our interest as a research team to start investigating other potential measures of um, assessing energy availability in athletes. And I guess we really wanted to look for a tool that could potentially increase the accuracy of our testing. So I guess that's why we started looking at CGMs because we thought, well, we know that blood glucose um, is disrupted as a result of LEA. So potentially we could use CGMs to tell us a bit about energy availability. So I guess CGMs, they're an existing technology, they're already out there. And we thought, do they provide us with an effective means of uh, determining whether an athlete might be in low energy availability? Now we know from previous research that acute reductions in blood glucose do occur as a result of imbalances between your energy intake and your exercise energy expenditure. And therefore this may be an important warning sign of LEA. And it's important to note that a number of Anne Lauk's early studies have demonstrated these changes to blood glucose over just a short period of time. But again, this is fasting blood glucose. It's not continuous glucose. So that's a point of difference there. Now, we also know that leptin and ghrelin um, are also uh, hormones that regulate blood glucose. And we've seen that these are also affected when an athlete is in LEA. So these are all factors that kind of 
we thought about when we thought, well, can CGMs potentially tell us something and give us a bit more of a real-time assessment of LEA? Now, um, I will discuss a paper shortly that talks about severe energy deficits, as I've mentioned there. Um, so, yeah, I'll talk about that in a minute. But I guess all of these factors that I've spoken about, so um, decreases in blood glucose that we've seen, leptin and ghrelin, and we've seen severe energy deficits that have reduced in, um, glucose, I guess tracking these patterns in glucose concentration via CGM well, they might be able to tell us about an athlete's energy availability status given all of this previous research. So this is a novel approach um, where we're trying to use CGMs to manage LEA in real time. And I guess it just eliminates that need for having to wait for those perturbations to occur to menstrual functional bone stress injuries. And so we're trying to reduce the longer term consequences, um, which are often difficult or even not possible to reverse. So we're trying to get those real time measures to prevent those long term consequences. So this study here looked at the effect of severe energy deficits on interstitial glucose responses. Um, and this occurred within healthy military personnel, which, you know, they're similar to athletic populations. They have high exercise um, energy expenditures due to their training. So I thought this was an important study to have a look at. Now, this study ran over two days and the participants either uh, adhered to energy balance with sustained exercise or they adhered to severe energy deficits, which were a 93% deficit. So they were only consuming about 300 kcals per day. Um, they also completed increased exercise regimes, which brought their total energy expenditure to about 4,000 kilocals per day. So don't even ask me how you would, how you would manage that, but they did. Now, um, Interstitial glucose concentrations were also measured continuously throughout this study via CGM. And so what this study showed us was that the interstitial glucose concentrations that we saw from the CGMs were significantly lower and also the mean percentage of time that these athletes spent or they, these military personnel spent in hypoglycemia was greater during that significant energy deficit compared to the energy balance group. And so this indicates that there are there is some disruption to blood glucose control that happens following a period of energy deficit. So the reason why we see these changes in blood glucose control is because these prolonged severe energy deficits, while well, they result in the activation of these gluconeogenic pathways, which utilize the lipids and amino acids to generate a glucose supply, which uh, aims to maintain our blood glucose levels in the absence of dietary carbohydrate. Now, because gluconeogenesis consists of a number of reactions, the production of glucose is often significantly slower than when we consume carbohydrate. And so it's possible that the absolute um, reduction of energy intake that's, uh, that's happened here and that is often uh, associated with LEA as well reduces exogenous substrate availability and then has downstream effects on glucose metabolism. Now, we know that to date, there's been no study that's actually looked at the direct effects of LEA on glucose when measured by CGM. Although I do have a bit of pilot data um, to talk to you guys about. So this study here was a study that Louise conducted down in Canberra. 
um, and it's formed part of a review paper that we're actually writing at the moment, um, which will hopefully be released very shortly. But what they did in Canberra was they conducted a pilot study to see what might have happened to the interstitial glucose responses when athletes were put into a period of low energy availability. Now, this was a relatively small study. There was only seven participants in total, and these were split across the two groups. So we actually only had three participants in the LEA group or the low energy availability group. So we can't draw too many conclusions from this research, but it does sort of give us a bit of an indication of what might happen and what we might be able to see with CGMs when an athlete's in low energy availability. So what this study did was um, it put the athletes into dietary harmonization or energy balance for five days. And they were they consumed um, about 40 kcals per kilogram fat-free mass, which is essentially optimal energy availability. And then um, this was followed by two five-day periods of either um, high energy availability or low energy availability. And throughout this period, they, can, they completed... Um, training and they also wore the CGMs. Now, this data here hasn't actually been published yet. It's, it's going to form part of our review paper, but I thought it was important to talk about. So as we can see um, from that first graph there, the mean blood glucose overnight, um, and so the reason why we're looking at blood glucose overnight is because we don't have those interactions from diet or exercise, which will affect blood glucose. So we're just looking at blood glucose here. So unfortunately, this graph doesn't tell us a lot because there was no difference between mean nocturnal blood glucose control. And have we had more participants? We may have seen a difference there, but we're not sure at this stage. However, as we can see by that second graph, the overnight glucose variability, which is measured by that MAGE value that I spoke about before, well, that was different between the high energy availability and the low energy availability groups. Now, there wasn't a difference between harmonization and intervention, which again, we need to conduct this study with more participants. But it's interesting to know that overnight, there's perhaps something going on with blood glucose and whether that's like we see here, a reduction in glucose variability or an overall reduction in blood glu glucose concentration. We know that there is something going on when athletes are in low energy availability. And that's similar to that research that was published by Smith with those military um, personnel that I spoke about, because they also experienced an increase in their hypoglycemic episodes, meaning their overall blood glucose was lower following a period of energy deficit. So as I said, this research was only done in a small number of participants, so we can't draw any concrete conclusions, but it does give us an idea of what we might be looking for. So we're, we're thinking we might be looking for some overnight changes in glucose variability that might occur as a response to LEA. Now, we're not 100% sure at this stage what we will see. We're not sure whether we might see an increase in glucose variability, a decrease in glucose variability. We might just see... Um, changes uh, postprandially, so after meals. Um, but at the moment, this does give us an indication that there is potentially something going on as a result of LEA. Now, unfortunately, as with any technology, there are some practical limitations with CGMs uh, in both the research and free living environments. And so, um, we know that previously we have seen CGM devices become dislodged during endurance events. 
um, which unfortunately results in the loss of blood glucose data. So um, I can speak for this. When I was in Canberra, I had one athlete who lost five CGMs over the course of about three days. Um, and so that makes it quite difficult because you're thinking you're spending a hundred dollars a pop on these things, you're popping them on the athlete. Sometimes they just fall off and then you've lost all your data. Um, the other thing to be considerate of too, is that these devices must be scanned every eight hours. And so say if an athlete sleeps for longer than eight hours, well, you start losing data. So because they must scan every eight hours, if they don't scan within that eight hours, you then start cutting off data from the start point. So that also poses a difficulty for us as well, especially when we're considering athlete recovery, because we don't want to compromise that just so that we can use this tool. Now, another, additional considerations with this use of CGMs um, are that environmental factors can impact the um, adhesive film that goes around the sensor. So um, in conditions where it's really humid or uh, there's direct physical contact in certain sports um, or the athlete has high perspiration rates or if they're in an aquatic environment for extended period of time, um, the, the sensors are less likely to stay um, stuck onto the skin because that adhesive just wears off. Um, another consideration too is that often free living endurance um, athletes, they've highlighted the need um, for a collaboration with a sports nutrition professional. So we've done a few observational studies um, with some athletes where we've gotten them to wear the CGM for a week and then they'll provide us with some feedback on what they thought about the CGM. And so I guess what's come out of that most um, importantly is that this, the athletes don't really understand what the CGM is trying to tell them. So it's really important that they have interaction with a sports nutrition professional or a sports dietitian to tell them what the actual glucose data might mean to them. So if they consume a high carbohydrate meal and their glucose spikes, well, what does that mean? Or if we're looking at the entire day, how do we know whether they're matching their energy intake to their exercise expenditure based on their blood glucose? And this is something that we're trying to research further so that we can get a better understanding of this. But I guess it's just important to note that this is likely a tool that will, be need, will need to be used in conjunction with the sports dietitian. Um, another risk of this um, technology and, and similarly to recording dietary intake is that there's a potential for the athlete to obsess over the data because they can see it, it's there on their phone. They might see a spike and go, oh no, I can't eat that carbohydrate rich snack that I had planned for pre-training because my blood glucose has spiked up really high. And so all my blood glucose is really low. I need to like fill myself with all this food so I can get it up. Like, so I guess it's just something that we really need to work together with the athlete on to make sure that we're not altering their eating patterns or behaviors and it doesn't lead to um, disordered eating. Now, finally, um, another consideration is the no needles policy that the AIS has introduced. And um, for those who aren't familiar with that, it, it prohibits the use of injective equipment um, among athletes and medical personnel. Um, and so the policy requires an individual to have documentation to um, describing that they have a medical condition and so that then they can possess the injective equipment. Now, 
there's a bit of uncertainty at the moment around the sporting community as to whether CGM should be exempt from this policy as like they're so minimally evasive and the needle is sort of, you wouldn't really think of it like a needle. It sort of looks like a piece of, I don't know, like tinsel or something. Um, so it's not really a needle, but like, yeah, with, with the lack of clarity around this, I guess we just need to consult the sport, sports um, governing bodies before we sort of move forward with this, um, the use of CGMs. So where to from here? So as I mentioned before, we are looking at submitting a review paper shortly, which will essentially talk about what we've talked about today, but in further detail. So if you want any further information, I would strongly recommend you have a look at this paper, which should be published in coming months. We also have an intervention study planned for later this year where we're going to look at the effects um, acute LEA might have on blood glucose response. So we're still drafting this study, but um, we're considering about a 36 to 48 hour window where the athletes will be put into LEA, will monitor their blood glucose via CGM. They'll obviously be under controlled dietary exercise um, conditions and we'll have a look at what happens to their blood glucose response. And it's likely that we will focus on their blood glucose response overnight um, to get a bit of an indication of what is actually happening as a response to LEA. So to finish up, I just want to leave you guys with something to think about. So we know that there is limited research out there that has investigated blood glucose responses of athletes. And at the moment, CGMs can provide us with a large amount of data on gl blood glucose levels, but we don't know how informative this is on athletes' fueling needs. So there's some indication that athletes um, monitoring glucose via CGMs might be able to give us an indication of fueling adequacy but and or energy availability but we need a better understanding of this so think of an srm that provides information on work output during cycling so this provides the coach with important information on cycling power but it's ultimately how the coach uses this data that makes it useful now similar it's a similar scenario with cgm it's also important for us to remember that assessment of LEA should always involve a combination of several different tools to determine whether an athlete is at risk. So if CGMs are to be used in the future, it's likely that we would need to use these in conjunction with our usual assessments of dietary intake and training load to provide a complete picture of energy availability or, and to give us a better indication of fueling adequacy. So we would need to use CGMs, fueling, uh, dietary intake, training load assessments to really paint that complete picture about energy availability. And so I guess the positive thing about CGMs going forward is that hopefully they're going to allow us to identify athletes who might be at risk sooner than we can um, at present. So at the moment, we believe that looking into an athlete's glucose response nocturnally um, where we don't have that interaction between nutrition and um, training load, that might tell us the most valuable information about fueling adequacy and or energy availability status. We also know that that postprandial window following meals, well, that might provide us with some information regarding an athlete's response to carbohydrate. But we are continually collecting more information from these devices and conducting further research. And that project that I have planned for my PhD will hopefully tell us more about what periods of blood glucose data will provide us with this insight. Thank you.
And Greg's face there looks like he might have pre-diabetes. So might have to look into that. Oh, thank you so much, Amy. <laughs> Love that. That was a fantastic um, presentation. Really appreciate uh, all the work you've put into that and a really great summary of, of what we do know to this point and all the work that's yet to be done. We do have a few questions and the first one actually comes from me and so I'll make sure it gets answered. Yep. You talked about uh, in your first slide about CGMs measuring an interstitial fluid mm -hmm. and I'm just wondering is that directly reflective of blood glucose levels? Yeah so I think that's a really good question. Um, so there's actually a five to 10 minute delay between the actual glucose readings that we would receive from something like a finger prick test. So when we prick the finger and then we pop the glucometer on, there's a delay between the reading that we would get from that and the value that we receive via a continuous glucose monitor, um, which is taken from the interstitial fluid. And that's because the glucose has to diffuse across the capillary walls and then through that interstitial space to the sensor. And so there's a delay that obviously exists in getting that reading from essentially the reading that we would get from, from the blood to the reading that we would get from the interstitial fluid. And the fact that this delay exists, it just means that us as practitioners need to be aware that the glucose response that we see to meals, it, it will be slightly delayed. So if we're trying to understand what's going on with an athlete's um, fueling adequacy or their response to carbohydrate ingestion, we need to be mindful that the results that we're going to see from a CGM, will there will be a delay with those. And I guess that just slightly limits the applicability of the devices. And it's just a limitation, I guess, that we need to be mindful of. But yeah, there's, there's about a five to 10 minute delay. Yep. Thank you. I'm going to combine two questions here. Yep. Um, does the site of insertion matter where you're inserting the CGM, so arm versus leg? Fire alarm. Okay, I'll be muting. Can you also answer if a CGM is dislodged, if you can replace it? Okay, yeah. Um, also good questions. Um, so the CGMs, where they're placed, so there is only evidence to suggest that the CGM, the Abbott Freestyle Libre specifically, can only be placed on your tricep. And that's where the evidence suggests uh, supports that. It has not been researched um, when you put it in other areas. So you really need to put it on the tricep. The Medtronic iPro2 can be placed on the ab or the upper butt. Um, and you, I guess you would just place that in the best possible spot for the athlete. So it depends what kind of um, activities they're doing as to where it might suit them best. Um, but that one's not approved for use on the arm. So Medtronic, abs or butt, um, Abbott on the arm. But again, the Abbott, you can see the values that they're getting. The Medtronic, you can't. And the Medtronic also doesn't last as long. Um, so yeah, so the Abbott only on the arm. Um, and the second question, can they be replaced? You can't stick a CGM back in once it's fallen off because essentially the needle goes from being like this to being like this. And so, yeah, it's just, it's not, the needle is not um, strong enough to be able to re-pierce the skin. So what happens when you, when you lose a CGM, you've got to discard that one, put another one on, wait the 24 hours again, and then start monitoring. So, so yeah, that's a real problem with um, disruption of, uh, sorry, dislodgement of the CGMs. 
there. Yeah, you can't stick them back in, unfortunately. So that $100 is just gone down the drain. Yep. Yeah. Like that athlete where I spoke about where we had five. Yep. I'm like, you're very um, impressive. <laughs> our next yep. question, does the frequency of sampling create more noise or do we get value out of that? So if you're sort of looking at one minute versus 15 minutes, mm -hmm. are you just getting more disturbance and, and noise into your readings or is there value yeah. in that? I mean, as far as I'm aware, like I don't think I would say that there's more noise. I think it's definitely more variable, uh, more valuable, sorry, because you've got more readings to look at and the readings that you're getting paints a more continuous picture. Um, I mean, the CGMs that we've used uh, monitored every 15 minutes and we still, we've still got a decent amount of data, but I guess... Um, when you lose readings from a CGM being dislodged, like with the Abbott Freestyle Libre, because it's every 15 minutes, you're losing bigger chunks of time. Whereas if you've got those minute by minute readings, it's more likely to stop on that minute and then recommence on that minute. Whereas these ones recommence every 15 minutes. So I don't see there being noise and I don't think there's been a lot of research been done into this because like I said, those athlete specific ones that can measure minute by minute are very um, new, but um, yeah, I, I think it's more beneficial to have more frequent readings because, because you're getting a more complete picture of what someone's blood glucose is doing um, as opposed to getting those readings every 15 minutes. Yeah. Great. And next question, and understanding that it's really early in the research phase, so it might be just more your thoughts on this, okay. yep. but do you think there's a difference in blood glucose variability in athletes with long-term LEA versus short-term LEA? Oh, yeah, that's a good question. Um, and yeah, we don't really know. I, I mean, I guess the point of this tool is more for the short term. So I guess um, the purpose of using CGMs would be more over the short term to see if um, someone's blood glucose is more variable over the short term. But I guess if you're talking about popping a CGM on someone who you don't know, and there might've been an LEA for a long period of time, yes, like their blood glucose may be doing different things, but yeah, we're really not sure. And I guess too, the research that's been done has been very acute. It's only been over sort of five day periods. So perhaps that's a really good research study for the future, I think. I think that's a really, really good point, but just not something that we know enough about, I don't think at the, at the moment. I mean, I think potentially you would expect to see some difference if someone has been in LEA for an extended period of time, because it's more like that starvation um, sort of mode and so you might you might see that blood glucose returns to normal um, uh, as it adapts but yeah I'm, I'm I'm not really sure on that bit of a watch this space yeah definitely unfortunately a lot of this is because it's just such new new research yeah do you um the research that you sort of presented to us the the studies did any of them consider the glycemic index of the carbohydrate or I don't believe so, no. They might have, but it's not something that I'm aware of. No. Good point, though. Oh, Beth, I can't Athlete. hear you. Oh, they, you're back. You got me? <laughs> the long one. Is it possible for an athlete to wear a CGM while protecting them from viewing the data? So yeah. can they wear it and you sort of keep the data from them? 
Um, Alicia just says she's witnessed a growing number of challenges with European athletes using monitors being triggered by the numbers. So restriction, yeah. food, fear, um, and those sorts of, of yeah. habits that you sort of mentioned. Is there a yeah. way that you can stop the athletes from seeing that data? Yeah. Um, so the Freestyle Libre, I'm not 100% sure. I know that does come as visible to you. And unfortunately, because you need to swipe over it every eight hours, it's not something you can really hide. I'm not aware of whether there's an option to change this, but as far as I'm aware, it's, it, it, is, um, it is visible. The athlete-specific sensor from Super Sapiens, well, that's continuous via Bluetooth, so I don't think there would be any possible way to hide that from an athlete either because it's, it's just you can have your phone sitting right there, the sensor on your arm, and it's just continuously feeding to it. So unless the dietitian had a separate phone and they were with the athlete 24-7, I don't think there's really any way to, to mask that. The Medtronic iPro 2s, they are, um, all that data is invisible to the athlete and research studies have used those before. Um, but the problem with those is that they're really tailored to diabetics and there's no we have spoken with the Medtronic representatives and there's no sort of intention of developing anything for athletes in the foreseeable future so I guess using those devices in athletes now it's, it's not sort of helping us as practitioners in the future because there's no really uh, real direction or or aim to go into the athlete space um, so unfortunately, no. And interestingly, um, Greg actually, Greg Cox actually showed me a, um, a tweet from Twitter that was talking about, I think it was, I can't actually remember exactly what it said, but it was like anorexia, but with blood glucose, it was like, you know, you're like, or obsessing over your data, like you would, if you had an eating disorder, but it's like with blood glucose. And, and I think we are starting to see more of that. And I think, Unfortunately, it's just without the ability to um, hide the data from participants with these Abbott monitors, it's just something we have to be really mindful of. And I know that I've been working um, a bit, I've worked a bit with um, Jess from Athletics Australia, I've worked with um, Steph from Triathlon. We've been putting some monitors on on the guys and having a look at it. And, and I, I've just, at this stage, I guess it's just about being targeted with who you put those CGMs onto. So is that athlete appropriate to use this CGM with, you know, do they have pre-existing disordered eating behaviors or, or, you know, do they obsess over data? And I guess at the moment it's that, that's sort of something we've been doing. We've just sort of been screening the athletes to make sure that we're putting it on people who are suitable. Um, yeah. It's a great point. And I guess it just highlights the um, importance of the sports dietitian. It does. That you, yeah. You discussed. Um, Liv's just got a question about how do you use the CGMs with swimmers if water immersion is an issue? Yeah, so um, we haven't actually tried this yet, but we are we are hoping to try it in the near future. Um, at the moment, we have been using, um, we have been trialling different tapes over the CGM. Oh, yeah, there you go. Greg's just, I just Greg's seen Greg's comment. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> glucorexia nervosa. There you go. That's what it was called. Um, but thanks, Greg. But um, yeah, we have been trialing different tapes to put over the CGMs, but we haven't really had too much success with that. And some athletes find that they actually stick better without the tape. Um, I myself have worn one and 
swim about three times a week. I didn't have any issues with it personally, but I also also think it does come back to the athlete themselves. So what's their skin type like? Do they have oily skin? Is there hair on their arm? Like all that kind of stuff can contribute to it falling off as well. And interestingly enough, most of the time when we see them fall off is not when someone's exercising or when they're in the shower or when they're in the, you know, recovery spa or it's, it's usually when someone's like taking a shirt off and they've just accidentally, you know, bumped it off and it's all they've bumped into a doorway and it's fallen off. And so I think it's more about being careful around those things as opposed to worrying too much about those environments, but it's definitely something we, we want to try. We just, yeah, haven't yet, but yeah. Great. And our final question comes from Gary Slater and he would just like to know what contribution is liver glycogen playing here? Oh, <laughs> that's a very interesting question, Gary. That's a loaded question, last up. <laughs> yes, yes. Thank you for that very difficult question. Um, to be honest, I'm not 100% sure and it's probably something I would have to research a bit further. Um, yeah, sorry, Gary, but it's, it's something I'll, I'll look, definitely look into, but I just, I just haven't yet, but very, very good question. That's okay. Um, yeah, I think one of the great things from this presentation is we've all probably got bits that we'll look up and, and read further into as well. And thank you so much. Not only was that a great look at the research, although limited, but really current in the area, but also those practical tips that you've given everyone as well. Um, really fantastic webinar that I'm sure everyone got a lot out of. So thank you so much for presenting today, Amy, and thanks to all our participants who've joined in for today's session. I'll just remind you that it will be loaded onto Moodle uh, after this, and you can also log your CDP points for today um, at the conclusion. So thanks everyone, and we look forward to seeing you for our next webinar next month. Thank you. Thank you.